This is my conversation with Dr. Ed Gaddy, a medical doctor and movement specialist. Having studied biochemistry and medicine for over 12 years in the conventional sense, Ed realized that the underlying principles could not be learned and applied in isolation outside the laws of nature. In his own practices, he advises on well-being and quality of life using the newest science from the field of chronobiology, evolutionary medicine, and exposism with the help of clinical metabolomics and movement coaching. He is on a mission to bring health optimization medicine to the UK and further, introduce people to the concept of evolutionary medicine and cutting-edge clinical practices in health optimization and maintenance. This framework can build a sustainable and pragmatic approach that aims to build all philosophies to move the needle on individual health and reduce suffering. Hi, Ed. I just wanted to ask you about why you got into this industry. Where did it start from? Gosh, that's a very open and good question to start with. Um, firstly, thank you for the question. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess it starts with my interest in health and science in general as a youngster. Um, I was very academic and very scientifically minded, I suppose. I had a chemistry set and I went and studied maths, physics, chemistry and biology with a plan to be a scientist, I suppose. Um, that led me to doing a four-year degree in biochemistry at the University of Bath. And I spent one of those years um, in Dundee in Scotland, actually, where I studied um, intracellular uh, signaling pathways. One that's quite um, hot topic is the mTOR pathway. Some people have heard of it, some people haven't. Um, maybe we can touch on that later. And then I came back, finished my studies in Bath. Wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I did apply for a PhD in molecular biology, but um, during that time I was actually working with children who had special needs and autism and got really into understanding or wanting to understand behavior. Obviously, behavior is a very complex thing, I think. Um, and I kind of like to simplify and work out the fun fundamentals of these human processes that we all experience on a daily basis. So um, that led me into studying medicine. Um, well, that's what I thought medicine was going to be. Um, so I did five years of medicine, uh, studied in Northern Ireland in Belfast at Queen's University, and very quickly realized during my medical studies that I thought there might be a better way of tackling some of the problems that we see very frequently in hospitals and clinics and um, with our patients who present to us and with people and humanity in general. So I started to branch out my interest into different areas. I got very interested in, in movement, um, which I didn't expect to be so linked to health and, and medicine. And now I've taken that um, down a very deep rabbit hole, which again, something maybe we can talk about later. Um, came across a few different types of medicine, functional medicine, and then um, perhaps after that, uh, health optimization medicine, which is kind of where I see myself now. And uh, alongside that, I am now an illness medicine doctor, which I will uh, call it in psychiatry. So I'm in my 
just finishing up my first year in the UK psychiatry training program. Um, so that's basically my path to where I am now, where I'm, um, I'm seeing patients in both clinic and hospitals during my psychiatry training. And then when I have time off, which is uh, reducing rapidly, um, I see people and clients and um, help them with problems that I frame in perhaps a different way that I would do in my day job, so to speak. So what's the difference between the day job recommendations over what you're doing on, on the side? So I, tr I try not to make the, the too much of a difference, but um, as I just called it illness medicine um, and being an illness medicine doctor, and really that's where the, the conventional medical system is, is somebody comes in with a, uh, with a problem and we try to diagnose and treat the disease, which we use kind of a diagnostic manual to define. Um, and in health optimization medicine, rather than diagnosing and treating disease, we detect and correct imbalances, deficiencies, and subtle toxicities um, currently at the level of the cell. And we use that to improve the health of the individual. So in, uh, in illness medicine, we have a hat that is disease focused. And in health optimization medicine, we have a hat that is very much health focused. So how can we make somebody more healthy? What's the merit of like, you know, regular version of medicine where like, you know, people go in and then they have like medications that are given to you. Sometimes there's the benefit is that we need immediate, you know, support from a doctor. And then, then there's something that's a long-term solution that can like pay back in two, three folds. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I see, um, Obviously, acute medicine is very important. Somebody's got to the stage where either there's been a, a, a trauma um, physically that requires them to be stabilized very quickly. Otherwise, obviously, they could die. Um, but even then, I see that there's a, there's a lack of, potentially due to the resources or definitely due to the resources available to us of rehabilitation and coming to term even with that physical trauma um, which can have long-lasting impacts on somebody's behavior and, and mental health in the long term. And I think there's a real disconnect um, in the conventional system, br bridging maybe the acute problems with the more chronic ones. And it was never really designed to deal with the chronic ones. And it's quite evident most of the time that um, a lot of people continue to suffer from the chronic ailments that they're diagnosed with. Um, and I just like to see people get better. <laughs> Wouldn't you think that like, you know, the medical field would have evolved over time? Because I feel like the, the, the it is structured and it hasn't changed. And then my second question, to, uh, the second part of that would be medical school is already tough. How is this going to be optimized where you are mm -hmm. able to like train someone in such a way that they have all the information and then they also adapt with the times? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, with respect to medical school, kind of we learn we learn anatomy and physiology, and we go straight to pathology, and then pharmacology, surgery, and ways to treat the pathology, which again is the the illness medicine model. We never learn um, what what are the mechanisms by which something is healthy, which um, the term I always forget. Um, I believe it's 
salantology. It's something like that. Okay. Um, the, the generation of health, the creation of health. Um, how do we classify and define health at, at um, a mechanistic level? Um, and then your question on um, why hasn't the, the healthcare system evolved? I think because of, of pressures. And I think because it hasn't ever seen um, the long-term consequences as an important thing to, to focus on. So the more we almost put um, plasters on things and um, deal with the acute symptoms, but never manage those in a way that they can be resolved to prevent the chronic outcomes, um, doctors are becoming more tired. Now we, we tend to just follow a very um, rigid treatment algorithm, which tells us based on X, Y, and Z, which medication we give to the patient. We've only got five to 10 minutes to see them and then uh, they're on their way. But really, if you look back at the, the history of medicine, the, the word doctor means teacher. Hmm. And so there needs to be, well, I think, an element of education that, um, that that's where I see what I'm doing is, I, is one of the reasons I chose psychiatry, actually, is because we get longer with our patients. We get up to an hour in some cases, whereas the, the standard kind of family doctor who would have many appointments a day would be limited just to those five, 10 minutes where you don't really have time to ask people how they are, different areas of their life. It's my ears sore. Can I have antibiotics? More, most of the time, yes, because I need to get <laughs> on to my next patient. Yeah. Uh, you said psychiatry and you're studying that. What's the mm. connection between health, physical health and psychiatry? Yes. So, um, the the brain and the body connection is something that i'm super interested in and we, we we have always separated those things again in conventional medicine psychiatrists deal with um kind of abnormalities of um the mind and behaviors whereas we also have neurologists who look at the brain and the nervous system and it's quite a difficult thing to separate in my mind um at least conventionally but when you really consider that it's the nervous system which is this thing that lives within us that learns about our behaviors and it learns about our environment the there really is no distinction between the physical and the mental if that makes sense and in the there's been a few things i've learned from health optimization medicine about how we can frame um both in a similar light so uh, we have kind of um responses to emotional traumas that cause certain changes in us but we also have responses and there's something called the cell danger response which is essentially eight mechanisms by which a cell will respond to stress in the environment and when you match these two things up from my perspective they look very similar so the benefits to me of health optimization medicine is by taking care of the one individual cell you're taking care of the thing that is um common to every single organ and tissue in the body and therefore to the whole system so they're almost directly linked and you can't separate them at all you spoke about self cell damage and its response how does it manifest with people because of course it's like like you said it's psychological mm. and it kind of affects your cellular health but i don't have a background in it i don't know how to identify it and i don't know i 
in my space, I don't know doctors who would be able to identify that. Mm -hmm. So as a person trying to take care of my health, what would I look out for? So I think the, the common theme between both of them is a sense of safety, and that would be kind of the, the bottom rung of the ladder. Um, so when a cell is um, perpetually threatened, it will continue to exhibit the changes that were manifested by the stressor. And the same way, if, a, if an event in your life is traumatic enough um, that leads you to feel a lack of safety, then the, the modifications to your behavior, the way that you interact with people, your movement patterns, how your body responds will also continue to manifest. So again, on both sides, we can um, start to think about them. So the way uh, from a cellular perspective that we might be able to see if there's um, some sort of threat is measuring the level of inflammation um, or your um, intolerances of certain foods perhaps um, that your body perceives as a threat maybe they're not a threat but it's still remembering them as a threat um, and then with the movement work i do it's looking at the body as a set of nerves and muscles which should work in a particular way but realizing that in some cases traumas can um, from what I've seen, cause certain muscle groups to turn off or be overactive on one side of the body compared to the other. And again, it's these imbalances and deficiencies and subtle toxicities that I'm interested in. Um, and if we can objectively measure them, then we can come up with a plan to bring everything back into balance. To so for, yeah, for, for, for me, the left side of my entire body is always in a state of shock. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, that makes sense. I have a friend who has got like severe PTSD and it has manifested in the form of vitiligo mm -hmm. and other skin conditions. So for each person, it's different. How does that work? Yeah, so I think that um, the way we respond to stress, again, as you say, is very different from individual to individual. And I think one way that it's different um, that we know is obviously your genetic background. And that will dictate the behaviors that your system is more likely to exhibit um, versus less likely to exhibit. Um, and that could be from the manifestation of disease. And again, if you took two people with two different genetic backgrounds and exposed them both to stress, then you might expect to see a disease in both of them, but they might manifest at a different time and they ma might manifest in different organs. And the reason for that um, maybe due to the nuclear DNA, but it can also be due to the mitochondria. And what, what one of the theories of disease is this bioenergetic theory um, in that our mitochondria and the colony of our mitochondria and our cells um, undergo what's known as heteroplasmy, which is, let's say you had 100 and then something happened and 30 out of 100 became damaged in some way at that threshold of 70%, then you would start to exhibit symptoms. But the distribution of those might be different in different organs. So one person might have problems with their liver, whereas other person might have problems with their skin or their kidneys. Um, and then as you take that forwards, um, we've talked about the genetics, but there's also this thing called epigenetics, which is, again, something that happens in response to the environment. So if your genetic heritage is in one part of the world, for example, but you move out of that area and you impact your genetic signature in some way through change in diet or change in light environment or change in other exposures, 
um, then your epigenetics will change and then you'll manifest different behaviors based on that. And those behaviors might be diseases. You spoke about a little bit about movement and helping, you know, going back to your, like fixing your cellular health first. Mm -hmm. What is cellular health directly? Like how can you fix it? Because like you said that it goes back to the, the your each cell in your body. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the solution for it? Like, I, is there medicine for it? What would one take? It's, I know it sounds like a dumb question, but I have. No, no. It, I mean, it's a it's a useful question because then I can talk about what I like to talk about. Um, <laughs> so uh, I steal this from Dr. Ted Achikoso, who is kind of the the founder and pioneer of health optimization medicine, who's a very smart man, who says that health is very simple. It's the A plus B plus C, which is the absence of disease uh, in combination with the balance of anabolic, which is processes that build, um, and, and catabolic, which is processes that destroy, depending on the life cycle of the organism. So if we define health that way, then the way that we can measure and manage health is by looking at anabolic and catabolic processes. And the best way that we can do that in real time at the moment with the technology available is using something called clinical metabolomics. So we can do these tests, which can be blood, plasma, or um, urine tests or stool tests to look at all of your metabolites and see what levels they fall into. And the goal would be to move all of the metabolites to optimal levels. And they would be defined um, by the, the level that you experienced in the optimal years of your life, which is usually between 20 to 30 years old in the kind of third um, quartile, if that makes sense. But, okay, so imagine like, you know, I do these tests and it comes back all off, like everything's mm -hmm. messed up. What would you like, what, what, are, what are the steps that you take usually to like help someone through their health journey? So um, if I'm if I'm doing the tests, then I'll do an analysis and interpretation of all that test data. And I will obviously be able to look at things like cofactors, vitamins and minerals. So we can see, do you need more vitamin C? Do you need more alpha lipoic acid? Do you need more B12, B7, B6? Do you need more magnesium? Do you have enough omega-3s in your diet? Or maybe you have too many and you don't have enough omega-6s. Um, do you have um, certain bacterial species that are potentially pathogenic, or do you not have enough bacterioides or things like this, where we can say there's based on the literature, which is extensive um, and based on we, what we know um, in the science, if we correct these imbalances, and again, nothing is good or bad. There's no diagnosis. There's no claims. If we move all of these metabolites to what we perceive as optimal levels, which might include supplementation, it might include lifestyle interventions, it might include drinking better water or uh, having an air purifier maybe if you live close to traffic or um, reducing your exposure to electromagnetic frequencies which can impact health at the cellular level. Um, all of these things, again, we can quantify and then we can make very kind of precise recommendations off of the back of that. Speaking of environment and external agencies, mm -hmm. there is it's recently they came out an article where someone there was a study done and someone's breast milk had microplastics in it. So mm -hmm. that's freaking scary. <laughs> First of all, what are your thoughts on that and how does it impact health? 
Yeah, so we have, um, people have mostly heard of the human, uh, human genome database, but there's actually the human metabolome database, which um, characterizes all of these things that are popping up in our bodily fluids. And you can, you can look at the database and the, the growing um, area of that is environmental toxins, cosmetics, chemicals, that kind of thing. I think we don't necessarily know precisely um, what it is doing to the body, but I think we can be confident that the body is at least having to do some work in processing it. And the way I see health um, and our resilience to environmental stress is the more of these toxins and stresses that are coming out the body, the, the lower the threshold becomes you're, you're resilient and you're able to deal with something new. Um, and again, if it's in breast milk, it might be impacting the epigenetic signature for the child, for example. Um, and uh, again, a lot of illness medicine physicians and scientists might say, well, there's no evidence for that. But a lot of these manifestations can take several generations potentially to um, show us. And we may not even ever find the link if somebody goes 50 years and then realizes that they're infertile. Um, and it never was linked back to any of those things that were passed from the generation above, um, then how, how would we ever know? And it, it's just being aware of these things, I think. Um, but again, with my health optimization medicine hat on, it's from a perspective of we can do something about it. So it's not necessarily something to stress about and fear and worry because all of those negative emotions can again influence um, our system in a way that doesn't build health and doesn't build strength and resilience at the cellular level. I don't know if you've heard about, there's this book, I'm not sure, I can't remember the name or the author's name, but it talks about how microplastics and plastics in our environment are affecting the size of the human taint. And that is affecting the way, you know, babies are born and then uh, also the testosterone levels and how women conceive. So there is evidence for it. So, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I know you said don't be alarmed and don't concern yourself unless there is an actual impact. But the, our environment is uh, like, it's an external object that's entering your body and your body is going to get inflamed from that. Mm -hmm. So what would one do? Like, because we work in, we live in an environment that is like surrounded by plastic. There's no way ar uh, around it. What would one do to like avoid and like try to improve their life in some way? Yeah, so I, again, you, if somebody does have measurable levels and one of the tests that we do in clinical metabolomics does indicate your level of styrenes, for example, or MTB, which um, can be from kind of plastic containers and um, petrol fumes. So the first thing to do would be to reduce your exposure to those things. So you could maybe use glass instead of plastic. Um, you could make sure that you're using the right implements to cook with, etc. Um, and again, air purification um, or filters where you live, that kind of thing. And then the other side would be building the resilience. And all of these things impact our detoxification pathways. Again, the whole network of our, our cellular metabolic um, pathways, if we can measure them and make sure they're all in optimal range, then we can have some level of security and safety in the knowledge that the anabolic and catabolic processes are in balance because we know if we believe the definition that if they are in balance, then the um, 
toxins aren't going to overwhelm us. And that's kind of where health optimization medicine was born, because maybe 20, 30 years ago, the answer to most things would just be kind of um, spend more time outdoors, get more sun, um, drink well, eat well, relate well. But people are kind of in high stress businesses. Um, the modern world is more toxic as we go forward. So that's why I think there is a need to use these technologies to measure, to be more certain that we are mitigating um, these things. And we can, we can measure those detoxification and protective pathways to ensure that if you are exposed to things outside of your control, at least you have an element of control about how resilient you are to them. Speaking of pathways, you say you touched upon mTOR pathways. Mm -hmm. What is that? So mTOR um, has an interesting history. Uh, it was originally termed the mammalian target of rapamycin, um, which was named because there was um, there's a, an island called Rapa Nui, which is Easter Island, which is off the coast of South America. I think it's near Chile. Don't quote me on that. Geography is my least uh, strong subject. Um, and I've always wanted to go there, but I haven't yet. Um, and it was uh, um, found to extend the life of, I think it was originally in yeast cells. They lived almost 20% longer, if not more. And they were looking, oh, what's this compound? It's called rapamycin. And then the way scientists work is they want to know where rapamycin is working in the cell to make cells live for longer. So they characterized this protein called uh, the mammalian target of rapamycin, which has now been renamed, as far as I'm aware, the mechanistic target of rapamycin by David Sabatini, who I think works in Harvard still. Um, and this is one of the master regulators of cell metabolism. So I talked about anabolic and catabolic processes. Uh, mTOR um, forms complexes with other proteins in the cell, and it basically is a nutrient sensor. So it sees how much um, food is in the environment, really. So um, how, what the oxygen levels are like, if they're high, um, how many amino acids are in the cell, how many fats are in the cell, is the cell having to do lots of mechanical work. So if a muscle cell is having to contract a lot um, in the context of high nutrients and with lots of oxygen, mTOR will say, okay, it's time to build new cellular components. So it will build more new proteins. And in the, that way, it's anabolic. But um, as I've come to learn in health optimization medicine, everything is a yin and a yang. So whereas uh, mTOR is the master regulator of cell growth, you also have the regulator of catabolic processes, which balance each other out. So the, the uh, other side of the coin would be uh, AMP kinase, um, which responds to low energy levels in the cell and stops mTOR from building if the energy levels are low. And it's the balance of these two things which are important for health in the end of the day. If you have too much of that mTOR signaling, uh, you might see diseases start to happen. Cancers, for example, with uncontrollable cell growth. Um, and then we can activate AMP kinase with things like fasting, more endurance type exercise, and things like alpha lipoic acid, which is again an antioxidant, which is important in cellular health too. How does one trigger the mTOR pathways then? So that was one of the things um, 
when I was at university the first time, I, the reason I went to study biochemistry is because I was super into the world of bodybuilding. And that's where mTOR was super popular because people were trying to work out how do we get massive mTOR activation. Um, and one of the kind of bigger people in that field is Lane Norton, who's quite well known. Um, and his uh, supervisor, whose name slipped my mind, but was just on Peter Tia's podcast, um, Don Lehman, um, characterized a few ways that you can signal to mTOR. So um, leucine in particular, so one of the amino acids called leucine, which is a branch chain amino acid, which is why lots of these commercial companies will sell branch chain amino acids to grow your muscles. Um, a certain threshold of leucine will stimulate mTOR to start producing proteins. I think it's about three grams or something like that. And so, then there's, sorry, carry on. No, so kind of stupid question again. So you're mm. saying bodybuilders use a lot of mechanisms for uh, like increasing the mTOR pathways, mm. but then that also can trigger like, you know, chances of getting cancer because like overproduction of a certain cell type. So they don't really go back and balance it with their AMP pathways. So how does that work? How are they still healthy? Well, I suppose the question is, are they still healthy? Um, <laughs> and I think that is the case for a lot of high performers. Um, and something that I'm quite passionate about is that there is a way, I think, to do these things in a more healthy way. And Dr. Ted always gives us a case study that he talks about on podcasts um, where he had a bodybuilder who came to him and said, I really want to... Um, have a baby, but I've become infertile because of uh, kind of long years use of um, anabolic steroids, which are constantly signaling to mTOR. So you kind of throw this balance off in the body. Um, and when you measure all of these metabolites and you know the physiology, you know how the hormones work in conjunction with one another, then um, what Ted was able to do was bring everything back into balance, which took two years, which isn't a long time if you consider how much hammering his body had taken before that. Um, I think there's one of my passions and maybe my purpose is to show people that there's always another way around the problems that they're having and giving them maybe a bit of hope in that respect. Um, which again, uh, I find it very difficult when somebody says, should I take this or do this for my health? I just like to measure because mm -hmm. then at least we're turning over the, all of the stones and not leaving anything on the table. Um, I hope that answered your question. I couldn't specifically remember what it was to do with bodybuilding, but no, it was like because they are triggering mTOR pathways, mm -hmm. and like, and they're not balancing it out with their AMP pathways. Could they like cancer and like in the whole? Yeah, I mean, I, we I don't think we necessarily see too much cancer, um, but certainly heart disease because again, the the heart is a muscle and they're stimulating. Um, excessive growth in that tissue and the hearts tend to be something that gives up early. We've seen a lot of deaths, cardiovascular deaths in bodybuilders over the last couple of years. Um, and again, I have a, a good friend who's in the bodybuilding industry, um, who's an entrepreneur as well. Um, very stressful life. And he's a young guy, but I am constantly poking him saying, let me optimize your health at least then because once you have that kind of safety hopefully from a cellular level, we know everything's in balance, then you can start to push the um, push the needle towards performance. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to take these, um, these yin and yang pathways 
um, seriously because um, we do have cycles of life. We have the big ups and the big downs. And um, the bigger that you push the performance in the up, the and I know it could because I've seen it, the, the harder the fall is afterwards if you're not ready for it and you're not prepared for it. Switching gears a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. I, uh, I know people, especially in the industry that I work in, is a high stress field where everyone is overworked, uh, they're like to have sleepless nights, they're super stressed, and then directly after that, they suffer from insomnia because they just can't like get their mind to switch off. Mm -hmm. How would someone like you, like, you know, because they're generally healthy, they work out, they, uh, they diet, uh, they take care of themselves, but then somehow this, there's this imbalance because of that, they're always on a high stress yeah. state. Yeah, so this is kind of where I get into the more movement side of things because I see movement as a way to um, train our physiology in the way that we want it to respond rather than I want to look a specific way. Um, it is more about I want to feel a specific way. And as you say, people, the nervous system is a learning system. It, it expects a certain thing from the environment and it tries to ensure that it, the actions match that expectation. So if you have these external stresses that are constantly coming in, it's going to be at a level of stress constantly because it's expecting that. And as soon as you take that stressor away from the external environment, the body's like, well, I don't know what's going on. I, I need to be stressed. Um, so much of the work I do around uh, movement and training with clients is allowing them to regulate the nervous system in a way that they can bring themselves down when they need to and they can bring themselves up when they need to but they're never excessively stressed, if that makes uh, sense. You, you've mentioned about movement. What kind of movement would that entail? And second, is breath work a part of something that you practice? For sure. So again, the body is a whole system, so you can't ever move without thinking about the breath um, because the way that we generate tension in the body is through musculature. And there's two ways that we found um, um, through work with my mentors, Julian Pignot and Richard Aceves of the Barracuda Way, um, there's two ways that the body creates tension. And that's either tension towards the internal world or towards the midline or tension towards the external environment. And these are internal torque and external torque, respectively. And again, it comes back to a, a balance, uh, imbalances between these two things how well you're able to be internal and how well you're able to be external. So um, part of my working with clients um, looks at how well people are able to generate those two types of tension because it tells me a lot about the way that they deal with stress in other parts of their life. And then also, um, as I discussed, the nervous system is a learning mechanism. So um, part of that can just be um, a training session, very simple on the on a on an exercise bike, for example, and getting them to learn to regulate themselves in a way where they can hold a specific pace that's not too high and that's not too low, but they're able to maintain it for a period of time, and the emotional learning that happens during that ten minutes, for example, is I'm not going to go too hard stress myself out i'm not going to go too low and not give enough energy for the task at hand i'm just going to give just the right amount of energy for this task and in doing that in learning 
how much effort that your body is expecting to do for a specific task, it gets much better at calibrating. This is actually a stressful thing. This is actually not a stressful thing. Um, and as you say, the breath is important because the breath links these tensions in our body. We can breathe in a certain way to increase our ability to handle stress and we can breathe in a certain way to allow us to relax. And we see a lot of that. Uh, for example, if you jump in a bucket of ice or do um, cold therapy, when somebody jumps in, you'll see that they go to this more stressed breathing state, which is normal because their physiology is matching the environment. So they start to breathe through their mouth and hyperventilate in a <gasps> kind of way. And then as they learn, actually, it's a physical stress that's happened, but it's not unmanageable. And then as time goes by, they're able to start lengthening those exhales and relax into the situation. And then the body has learned we don't need to face the ice or the cold with as much stress as we thought we did because we're safe. And again, it comes back to the idea of learnt safety. And that's what I do with movement. Is that the same with in terms of ice and like cold exposure? How does heat exposure benefit the body? Because I know there's a lot of science behind why heat shock proteins are created and it mm -hmm. helps your body. Yeah, so I mean, you can look at it again from the very cellular level and you can look at it from the more energetic kind of behavioral level. Um, we know that the infrared heat of a sauna improves the function of mitochondria. It increases the... Um, the flow of electrons through cytochrome C oxidase, um, a bit similar to uh, methylene blue. I think you discussed that with my friend Boomer. Um, <laughs> and it also makes the, so um, the thing that produces ATP in the mitochondria is called a, uh, the ATP synthase enzyme. And it's basically a little motor that spins. Mm. And what, they, what they've shown is that um, red light or infrared light um, that you, experience in heat and the sauna actually makes that rotor of that motor spin at a hundred percent efficiency so you can produce more atp and you can reduce that mitochondrial heteroplasmy and mm -hmm. i think uh, from a kind of i was looking at this today from a spiritual side of things or um yogic traditions for example they would see the heat as the yang energy and the cold as the yin energy um so towards more of the parasympathetic for the cold and the sympathetic for the hot. Um, so I think the a lot of people in Scandinavia, for example, they would do the sauna and then they would jump in the cold fjords of ice and they would go back to the sauna and go between the books. And I think mm -hmm. that's very powerful for the body and most people feel really great and energized, but also very relaxed after doing that because it balances um, the nervous system in such a way that the body starts speaking to itself in a much more balanced way. Talking about balance and finding the right balance for yourself, a lot of mm -hmm. people just go to over the counter and buy like loads of pills. Like, you know, I feel like I need iron and I need vitamin C and I'm, I want to pick that up when they don't understand their own cellular health. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, I mean, you mentioned two things that are particularly interesting, iron and vitamin C. So um, vitamin C is an antioxidant, which people think are good, but there's always a balance between oxidation and antioxidants. Um, and these are essentially the gain and loss of electrons that happen in cellular processes. The, 
there's a balance between all of the antioxidants and there's an antioxidant cycle. So vitamin E, coenzyme Q10, alpha-lipoic acid, vitamin C, they all act almost in a cycle where each one, one will oxidize and the other one will take the electron. Um, and they'll all make sure they're in correct balance. So if you were to just take one of them, for example, you would throw off the others and that would create excessive levels of oxidation. And oxidation, uh, what we see in, in, in the physical world is rusting. So with respect to iron, if you took too much iron in the body and you were in an oxidative state for a long period of time, then you're essentially aging and rusting inside your cells. Um, and uh, one of my health optimization medicine colleagues, Dr. Scott Sher, who's very knowledgeable and one of the kind of pioneers of hyperbaric oxygen therapy for health, um, talks about this. And that's why he will always do health optimization medicine, all of your tests for giving his protocol for hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Because again, if you add oxygen to an oxidative body, then you're just causing more problems rather than balancing things out. Uh, there's also this thing, I'm not sure, I'm sure you know this, the, about the mineral wheel where, you know, if you take one, the other one is depleted, then it kind of balances out or imbalances the other one out. Would you want to explain a little bit of that to like someone who has no clue what that is? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> again, there's lots of these kind of yin and yang relationships. Um, and they're generally due to kind of size and charge. So certain things have similar charge and similar size. And that's important because we have these transporters in our body. We have transporters in our gut that bring these uh, minerals into our body. So for example, if um, a lot of people would take zinc lozenges going into winter because they think it's good for their immune system. But the problem with that is that uh, zinc impairs the absorption of copper. So unless you take zinc and copper together in correct quantities, then you're going to deplete your copper. And the problem with de depleting copper is it's important in uh, a lot of things. Um, your ability to produce energy, lots of pathways. Um, and the same would be the relationship between magnesium and calcium, for example. So if you just had lots of dairy and then you take your magnesium supplements, it's likely you're not really going to get too much benefit from those because um, they're both two plus charge. Um, the calcium and the, the magnesium ions. So it's just being aware of these very physical and basic relationships. Um, and I'm passionate about talking about it because, again, a lot of my colleagues in conventional medicine wouldn't really remember much of this stuff from medical school. And I, Dr. Ted got quite angry because he went to give a lecture and he was trying to get um, what we like in medicine called uh, credits for kind of attending educational seminars hmm. and he was he was told that it, all doctors should know this already so um he's not going to get the credits um whereas really doctors hate biochemistry they don't remember their krebs cycle they're not interested in knowing these things because it's complex and hmm. we are only doing our best at um interpreting the data and understanding the literature but we're always trying to move forwards and test maybe where we're not um, exactly right. And that's why we see it not just as a science, but as an art as well. So when we do our tests with our clients, and we call them clients because they're not sick, um, it's every six months, ideally, where 
we see the pattern over time, the way things are moving together. Um, and by doing that, we can kind of craft their metabolic network in a certain way um, without being too judgmental, I guess is the word. Think mm -hmm. we, we, we expect things to change and we allow them to change. It's just accepting that and then moving from there. There are some, like, uh, I live in the UAE where there's a lot of sun and people somehow still are low on vitamin D. So they mm. over supplement sometimes. And uh, the drawback of over supplementing uh, vitamin D is uh, your calcium uh, levels. Most people don't understand this connection. And they just over like, you know, now we have milk that's supplemented with vitamin D. Mm. Uh, what's the benefit of finding it through natural sources? And what can you look out for like, like some minerals like you know based on geographical locations you would expect certain things like why is this this di discrepancy yeah I'm, vitamin d is obviously a kind of hot topic as well and it's an interesting one i actually had a um i still have a client in dubai whose vitamin d i think when i first started working with her was i think it was less than 10 which is also quite scary um and her doctors were recommending things like injections and she'd have an injection of vitamin D and she'd have really nasty reactions to it. And um, at some case, one of the pillars of health optimization medicine is kind of evolutionary medicine. And there's a, a need to realize that, again, our environment um, internally is a, is a mirror to our external environment. So at some point, if you create a big enough mismatch, you're gonna start to create issues. Um, whether we like it or not, and this is kind of part of circadian biology and chronobiology, we are yoked to the sun. It goes up and down every day and creates these um, cycles in ourselves that we can't escape from. And when we do escape from them, we become unwell and things like cancers start to pop up. Um, the discrepancy comes, I think, um, in that somewhere like the UAE and Dubai, they're quite inhospitable places, but they've been built. Um, not if the, if the kind of infrastructure and the buildings, et cetera, et cetera, weren't there, then it would just be a, an arid desert. And there wouldn't be many people there, I can imagine, just living in the desert because it's hot and um, there's not much water and it's just generally difficult. So it's this environmental mismatch, I think, that causes the problem. When you spend a lot of time indoors under artificial lighting, for example, you cause a dehydration inside your cells because our body needs that external environment. It's used to the sun. It's used to hydrating in a certain way. And it's not used to this very intense um, light that tends to be more towards the blue um, frequencies of the solar spectrum. And there's no UV and there's no uh, infrared and red parts of the, the lighting. And that kind of sets the system up in a way that it just doesn't understand what to do. And I think that's why when you have um, dehydrated cells and then go out in the sun, you're unable to produce the vitamin D because your system just is missing the, the communication and the right signals from the environment. Um, so for example, to produce adamate, uh, adequate amounts of useful vitamin D, which is a hormone, which is why it's important in things like calcium metabolism and the immune system and all those other things. Um, you require adequate vitamin A, 
because that forms the vitamin D receptor. You require magnesium for the conversion to happen. You need the UV light to act on hydrated skin cells. You need the liver to be functioning correctly. You need the kidneys to be functioning correctly. So all of these things, the electrolytes, the minerals, the cofactors, they all come together. And they all need to be measured so that you know what's causing that imbalance internally. Exactly. And I, one of the imbalances that I, I got into actually um, over the past few years while something was happening um, uh, was, was light. Um, and I kind of touched on it there. I um, dug deep into the work of Dr. Jack Cruz. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a, a, a challenging individual maybe for some people to listen to. Um, he has his opinions, but he's also an extremely smart man um, in the field of kind of quantum biology, quantum physics, um, light biology, circadian biology. Um, and it has these very elaborate blog posts and thesis that he comes up with that when you spend time reading them, um, have a lot of golden nuggets when it comes to optimizing your health and thinking about health. How is the circadian rhythm connected to your optimized health? Because I know there are a lot of people who like spend all night, they're up and then they are asleep during the day and that kind of over a period of time, like there's no immediate effect, but over a period of time, it has, there's signs of like a decline in your health. How mm. is it, where, what's the connection? So if you remember, I, I mean, there's, there's lots of connection, but if we go back to the basics, if, if you remember, I talked about the importance of a healthy mitochondrial colony. Um, the, the mitochondria have their own circadian rhythm, obviously, but the way that mitochondrial um, DNA is repaired, or one of the ways it's repaired, is by melatonin. And melatonin is the hormone or the, the peptide of uh, darkness. So it starts to be synthesized actually in the morning when sunlight hits your eye and hits your skin. And then um, as darkness comes in the evening, it signals to your body to relax. So when the melatonin cycle is off, then you lose the cortisol cycle and you lose the thyroid hormone cycle and you lose the adrenals and sex hormones and they're all connected. Um, but melatonin is one of the first that controls all of these other pathways because of its impact in these energy producing batteries in all of our cells, which are the mitochondria. So that's in a nutshell why, why they're all linked. And melatonin is actually one of the strongest antioxidants in the system too. Um, and it's actually been investigated as an adjunct to cancer therapies. So they would use high dose melatonin now, uh, I believe in some parts of the world alongside chemotherapy and other kind of conventional practices for, for cancer. Melatonin is a sleep hormone, right? Yes, but people think it puts you to sleep, but it actually just signals your body to relax. So if someone is like, like I mentioned, like, you know, always in an alert state and like their melatonin levels are imbalanced, they are also triggering like, you know, uh, and predisposing themselves to cancer and other diseases. That would be a, a reasonable theory to have. Yes. Obviously, from a health optimization perspective, it's not ideal for health because the health of our, the way we think about it is that we have because we're thinking about cellular health, we have these four species or, or groups of cells in our body. So we have the, the aerobic organism, which would be the mitochondria, and we'd have the anaerobic organism, which is the normal cell that encloses the mitochondria. 
And then we have the specialized cells which have specific functions, so the neuron or heart cells or anything that produces something um, in particular. And then we have the microbiome or the microbiota or the kind of um, the cells that a lot of people don't think are us, but they are us. <laughs> I was actually going to come to that directly after this question is your gut microbiome mm -hmm. and how it's connected to your health, the way you think, your depression, everything. Do you want to just like explain how that is connected and how you work with it? Yeah, so I mean, there were there's a very famous um, experiment that happened i don't know what years i think i want to say the 80s but that's a complete guess it could be the 50s um where this man um, came up with what's known as brack's hypothesis where um these patients who are suffering from peptic ulcerative disease um ulcers in their stomach they had the vagus nerve cut um, with a surgery that prevented the brain from talking to the gut and uh, they found that those people had lower rates of Parkinson's disease. And since then, we've kind of come a long way. And uh, there's a few different groups across the world. I think there's a group in Ireland, um, Professor Tim Dynan, who has written a book about how um, our mood is um, influenced by the microbiome. Um, and also, it's important to know that the vagus nerve has fibers that send signals from the gut to the brain, but they all, the brain also has signals it sends from the brain to the gut. So that's why our, our state, the way we socialize, is all linked into the way we eat um, and our behaviors around food. Coming back to the, the bugs in our gut, they do lots of important things. Um, I've talked about before, we can measure the balance of certain um, groups of bacteria. They all, again, have specific functions. Um, and it's a balance of these that, that give us health. They produce B vitamins for us. They're essentially a symbiotic um, partner to us. We give them energy in the form of food or energy from our cells, and they give us uh, cofactors, nutrients. They process some of the foods we eat. So for example, the fiber that we eat gets fermented in our large intestine, and then the bacteria there um, would ferment it and produce something called butyric acid or butyrate, which is a short chain fatty acid. And then that is actually used as a fuel source for the actual cells of the gut. So if we lose the populations of cells that do that fermentation, because A, we don't have enough fiber in our diet, or we, um, take excessive antibiotics or something insults our physiology in a way that we lose them, then we lose the butyrate and then low levels of butyrate have been linked to um, suboptimal health and some diseases. Have you done little studies or do you have a background in HMOs and the gut microbiome? Because there's a link to uh, babies who've been breastfed versus who have not and how they have higher levels of HMOs and that kind of affects their overall health even in the long term. So, I mean, it's something, remind me HMOs as a, an acronym? Yeah, human milk oligosaccharides. So, uh, not I don't know if I specifically know about those, but I know that certainly um, there's a link um, to these microbes that we have present. Um, the, the thing I'm thinking of is the difference between having a normal vaginal birth versus having a, a C-section. And yep. the 
the importance of the coating of the baby's skin with the the microbes that are present on the mother versus when the C-section happens, the first microbes that touch the baby's skin could be the hands of the person holding it for the first time, which may not necessarily be the mother. And I think they've shown that in those cases, these babies have a higher rate of atopy, so asthma, eczema, those types of things. And I think, again, we have to look at things through an evolutionary lens, mm. um, but we also need to remember that it's this organ essentially this microbiome in the gut is formed over the first i think two years of the life and it it, it weighs as much as two kilos um so uh, it, it's a really important thing and i think um in the future we will probably hopefully find a way that we can profile the the microbes in the baby very quickly to make sure that it's setting up for a healthy development because we know a lot of these um, early insults traumas that happen um, in the earlier years in what we call the critical development periods have much bigger impacts going forwards they're almost magnified later in life so i think it's certainly an interesting avenue of of future scientific work so imagine i was not breastfed and i was not like you know born in the in like in a natural way was there was a c-section done uh and like my health is completely wrecked i was on antibiotics when i was like for two years when i was a kid what would one do to fix that well i think it comes back to a doing the test to optimize your cellular health um and keeping on top of that for the rest of your life um mm -hmm. it's almost like taking your car to the garage um, as a, we call it the MOT here in the UK or the service, making sure that there's no um, things that are going to veer you off the road and cause problems. Um, and then the other side of that would be looking at how these, um, you could describe them as traumas, whatever you like, these events that happened in the past that shaped you in a certain way, whether there's... Um, energy trapped in the nervous system that could be processed and released to allow you to move forwards from that and change your behavioral patterns. Because that's something um, that I'm, I'm kind of getting into more so now, even I find it more exciting than the health optimization medicine kind of detection and correction at the more macro scale is looking at how the nervous system could be holding traumas in the body and being able to help people identify where they are and process them and express them and release their energy. Um, and that's something I'm doing with uh, Richard Aceves, who has a business called Movement Ayahuasca. So he does these retreats for people and there's no kind of drugs involved it's, or maybe alcohol um, <laughs> um, over a few days where he uses movement and breathing to allow people to um, move through these traumas hopefully find safety in their body and that, that allows them to find safety and confidence in their mental state and in their emotions that perhaps were altered by previous life events. And it might be life what events that we don't remember, like things that happened around our birth. I want to go back a little bit on the vagus nerve and mm. Wim Hof. So Wim Hof has this method of breathing techniques, which kind of helps with activating your vagus nerve. I might be completely off on that. So how does that affect your gut microbiome or does it even do that? 
So I'm sure it does. I mean, I, this is so. I was actually at a. It was. I, I don't know what you would call it. It was kind of a conference, but it wasn't really because it wasn't. Um, it was more for the the public. But that that professor I was talking about, Tim Dynan, um, was talking about the impact of food on uh, on our mood and our brains, etc. And I asked the question, "What about the other way? What about impacting the vagus nerve and our gut microbiome?" Um, I definitely think that there is a reverse um, relationship, if that makes sense. And certainly there's been some, one of my other mentors called Julian Pignot, um looked very closely at the relationship between the, the parasympathetic nervous system and the types of bacteria that you would see in somebody who's more towards the parasympathetic side of the nervous system versus the the sympathetic side of the nervous system so these two um arms of how we respond to stress and it seems to be that the the parasympathetic nervous system is associated with um bacterioidy species whereas the sympathetic nervous system seems to be associated with um prevotella type species and the interesting thing around those is it kind of makes sense because the bacterioidy seem to digest more proteins and saturated fats whereas the prevotella digest more carbohydrates, sugars, and unsaturated fats, which are kind of um, more immediate sources of energy, which is what the, nerve, the, the sympathetic nervous system would be reliant on. And you know, if you have a, a large meal where you um, have maybe a large piece of meat or a steak or something, um, that causes you to kind of feel very relaxed and lethargic. Um, so is it the bacteria? Is it the nervous system? It's probably both. Um, and that, that's where my interest lies, kind of linking these ideas all together. What about people who have like high levels of uh, acromancia in their gut and then they are able to like digest fats quicker and it's kind of linked to like, oh, high metabolism per se. And one, how can someone change that? Because there's some people like, oh, they've got just they've just got a genetic lottery and they're going to always going to stay thin for their all their lives because they have a high metabolism. But when studies have been done and acromancia has been like you know the common suspect in their gut mm -hmm. i mean we have a few kind of approaches when people have imbalances in the gut um we obviously make sure that there's no inflammation present that would be the, the first thing that we deal with and then whether they have any maldigestion so whether they're producing enough enzymes or they're not digesting their foods um and that could be as simple as making sure that they eat more slowly or um eat in a more social environment again so that the the system relaxes you're more parasympathetic ready for digestion mm -hmm. um with respect to the balance we can again um feed certain bacterial colonies with prebiotics so the prebiotics are the foods that bacteria would use themselves or we can add probiotics which can be of several different types you can have kind of spore forming live cultures um, I don't think we're there yet with being able to specifically target certain colonies and certain species and genuses of bacteria with our probiotics. I just don't think the technology is there. Um, there's some interesting um, commercially available tests that tell you to eat certain foods to boost certain um, types of bacteria. It's interesting to me. I've actually never done them myself personally. Um, but yes, I think it's a, 
with these things, you can get into the detail, but if we focus on kind of our seven pillars dealing with our, um, our stresses from a maybe a, a job perspective or personal relationships, making sure we get enough sunlight, making sure we get balanced light, making sure that we uh, aren't too stressed with work, we have a good movement practice, we aren't um, too imbalanced from a neuromuscular perspective, doing all of these other tests. I think if you move more nodes in the network, then generally things improve. I think if you just went to say, okay, all I want to do is add this type of bacteria to balance this other type of bacteria, I don't know how much change you could you could really make. I don't know if you've seen the film Back to the Future, but I always think about that in this analogy, is that if you go back to the past, you need to make more than one change to change the future. Fair enough. People <laughs> end up like, you know, going like, you know what, I want to be healthy. I'm going to get like a kale smoothie. I'm going to have superfoods with chia in my food, all of that, like, you know, matcha and matcha every day. What are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like it's just sometimes it's overkill when the foundations are not like there yet. Yeah. I, again, it comes back to this question. You, your beliefs are molded to think that that is what you need to do to be healthy, but that might not be the answer for you. And again, if you if your perspective of health is that you need to eat what other people think is healthy without doing all of these other important things like grounding well and um, drinking good water and moving well and relating well, and it, I think it, it's easy to get lost in the detail. But again, what, what is healthy for you? Can we measure it? Um, can you go to a coach or a mentor and find out maybe where your blind spots are? Um, what do you need to improve your health? Rather than stressing, maybe developing more social anxiety or I'm eating the wrong thing and they're looking at me in a certain way. I, the, it, this is, I, I mean, I, I, I didn't mention it at the start, which I probably should have done in the intro, but the reason I kind of got into this um, when I was at college studying maths, physics, chemistry, biology, I, I, with my friend who was into bodybuilding as well, we did a ketogenic diet. So we essentially just ate protein and fat for um, 10 weeks, I think we did the first time. And I uh, lost 20 pounds. I think I lost 13 in the first week. And... I was a bit chubby um, as a as a youngster. Um, I, I was skinny, but I was fatter than maybe I wanted to be. And when I finished it, um, and I did multiple versions of that diet over the next few years, and routinely I was able to lose a, a significant amount of my body fat. And it dawned on me that if I can do this, why why is losing weight? so difficult for some people and then i realized it's not as simple as knowing the mechanisms and all of the intricacies of how these things happen but it's how do we help people with their behavior how can we modify behavioral cycles that have become um, so ingrained and entrenched that people find it so difficult to make changes and again the first change is that um, I make with clients aren't necessarily anything to do with the foods that they're eating. It might be when they're eating them, how they're eating them, 
it might not even be to do with diet. It might be to do with are they getting enough cold exposure or heat exposure, looking at all of these imbalances. Because again, if you look at the whole network, um, and if I look at the way they move, and I can use movement as a way of magnifying their behavioral patterns and dive into the behavioral patterns that allow them to have more confidence in their conviction or have more confidence in social arenas to make decisions that are better for themselves, then the weight loss can happen as a byproduct and it doesn't need to be the main focus. Because usually when people focus on one thing, it just makes them stressed out and the stress causes them to not get that thing that they're after. You spoke about the ketogenic diet. Uh, there's mm. this whole part of the internet speaking about the carnivore diet where all they eat is red meat, eggs, cheese, and they dairy, and then that's it. Uh, that really does not like supplement fiber into your diet how mm. are these people still surviving and what are the long-term ramifications of a carnivore diet yes it's interesting i mean i've never seen the metabolic testing of somebody doing the carnivore diet um i think it, it always comes back to the environment matching the the internal environment so some people can get away with doing the carnivore diet, it seems, because maybe they're living in the sun, they're away from all of these modern stresses and strains. Um, the The environment that they live in is, is less hostile, perhaps. Um, their body is genetically not requiring of as much fiber, but we don't know that. In some cases, I think it's a good tool to use. So for example, we know that um, the Petersons, um, I think it's Michaela and Jordan, um, are big advocates of the carnivore diet because they, in her case, I think she was unable, to, she, she tried to have some green leaves once and then she needed like a knee and a hip operation and a replacement of her, another joint. The inflammation mm -hmm. was just huge. Now, um, if you have to avoid fruits and vegetables for the rest of your life. I don't think you're necessarily healthy, but it's a tool you can use to mitigate symptoms of a disease, possibly. I think, um, and Matt Maruka, who was interviewed, um, I can't remember whose podcast, but I really liked it, where he talked about um, people um, relying on the carnivore diet and continuing to use it, whereas the goal would be to be able to eat as many things as possible and enjoy as many things as possible. If, if you're searching for um, wellness, I suppose, which is maybe a bit different to health. How is, is this similar to a vegan diet where, again, you're eliminating a certain type of food groups just so that you can optimize for your health? And then I know that with the vegan diet, it's not completely uh, conducive to what our body needs because there are certain vitamins that are not there in a vegan diet. Uh, there are people who just avoid certain foods and it just kind of like because they don't like it, not specifically because of like, you know, moral reasons like it would be for a vegan. Uh, what would you say from your end is something that should not be avoided just because, you know? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I if you can tolerate most things, I mean, if you enjoy it, I think you should at least allow yourself to have it now and again. Purely from a, we all need to enjoy life a bit more 
perspective. Um, we, we, so one of the tests we do in health optimization medicine is your intolerances and the current profile that we use has 87 common things. Personally, um, I can't remember when I did mine, uh, a couple of months ago, I learned I had a severe intolerance of casein and dairy and moderate intolerance of eggs. And they're all things I really enjoyed. That said, after three to four days of removing everything, um, dairy and eggs, my energy went up. And then after a week, I lost all of my spots I had on my neck. Um, and then my skin started to heal in certain places and my skin was way better. I started to tan better um, in the summer. So all of these things do, do play a big role. Um, the goal for me would be to keep them away for kind of six months and then reintroduce them slowly and see if it has an impact um, and not necessarily become too attached to, to anything. Um, but I, again, after that amount of time, I think I could probably put them in maybe once every two weeks or once every few weeks just to enjoy them, um, but not have them too much. So I think that's a good place to start for a lot of people from an objective perspective. And then again, the if you're measuring all of these metabolites and making sure everything's in the optimal range, um, you can be quite agnostic, I think would be the right word, about the diet that you want to label yourself as following. For me, I mean, people would probably be shocked by the foods I eat. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I th we, we know, for example, that the 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 broader range of um, vegetables and fibers that you eat, the more um, variety and abundance you have in your in your bacterial colonies in your gut, which is associated with more healthy phenotypes. So I think um, those people who are big advocates of the carnivore diet are not necessarily advocates for health. Um, the same. You could argue for some advocates of the vegan diet um, are not necessarily advocates for health. They've just found in their case that starting a vegan diet has improved things. But again, things change over time. That's why we do our tests regularly um, because a lot of people um, after some years find that they developed quite significant nutrient deficiencies. And, and in fact, in my, in my work in the hospital, I had a patient who was psychotic uh, and depressed um, and had a very low B12 level. And he said that he'd been doing the vegan diet and hadn't been taking any supplements for the last couple of years. And now he was going to stop. Now, was he in hospital, um, psychotic and depressed because of that? Probably not necessarily, but everything factors in. Um, and this is important to know. What about sugar? Because I know there are a lot of people who say sugar is the devil, like stop having it. And we are kind of everything that you buy if it's processed food has a bit of sugar in it. Uh, How is that like depleting your mineral levels? Because from my understanding, it kind of comes in the way of your body absorbing minerals. So if it, I mean, uh, the way I look at sugar and carbohydrates in general is very much from a, um, an evolutionary environmental perspective. So the times of, depending on where you live, obviously. So if you live in a place where all year round there's orange trees and uh, fruit trees and these things that are producing fruits all of the time, and you're living in that sunshine, 
as my friend Ryan Carter would say, you have skin in the game, you're getting the sunshine and you're picking the fruits off the trees, you're staying active, you're using them as nature intended, then I don't necessarily see a problem with that side of things. I think in the modern world, the issue is that we have access to sugary foods 24 seven, 365 days a year. And when, for example, in the UK, there's not really much growing in the winter, there might be frost on the ground, there might be snow. Um, not many people are used to kind of going to forage for their food or hunting for their food. I think there's a, there's a case to be made for making sure that you, you're eating um, locally to your environment to not cause this environmental mismatch, as I've described. If you're spending a lot of time indoors um, in the winter under poor light, I think that adding sugar to the fire is probably not a, a good thing to be doing. And again, ketosis, I talked about the ketogenic diet. Ketosis is, a, is an, an, an adaptive mechanism. So um, a lot of mammals would usually hibernate through the winter. So they would gain weight leading up to the winter, then they would hibernate. Then they would enter a ketogenic phase where it would be cold and they would use their body fat reserves to create body heat survive through the winter and then they would emerge in the summer to again go and eat all of the fruits and the berries and the animals and things that were growing and flourishing in spring and summer um going back to the sugar thing i think that that's the way i describe it i i, I don't really focus too much on um how it impacts the minerals perspective of things, but I will say obviously sugar will cause the skew of the microbiome in a certain direction. And again, that microbiome is responsive to sunlight. It's responsive to our environment. So um, it, we're creating another mismatch. And I think the, the microbiome balance is just another readout for that. Makes sense. Uh, what about grounding? You like briefly touched upon that and how that is a tool that you use to optimize your health. What is grounding and how is that connected to your health? Yeah, so I, I think a, a potentially controversial one, but I think it's becoming less. I mean, there's good studies. There's a, um, there's a man called Clint Ober who I think he wrote a book called Earthing and maybe even a film. Um, who outlined the um, the concept that the the earth and the natural world is always in balance of positive and negative charge as as we are as kind of uh, electrical beings so to speak we have a nervous system that runs on electrical charge we have uh, healing mechanisms that are dependent on electrical charge there's a really interesting book called the body electric by robert o becker who was uh, an orthopedic surgeon who showed how bones required uh, electric charge to heal and how things like salamanders could regrow their limbs um, based on the electric charge. Um, and one way we can think about the balance of positive and negative in the body is electrons and protons. And when you have too many protons, um, that's what we call uh, a low pH, which would be acidity, which is 
quite toxic for the body. And the way to balance that out is increasing the number of electrons, which are the negatively charged things, which our mitochondria use to produce energy. When somebody's really sick in a the hospital, they're producing lots of protons, which we describe as inflammation. And that impairs the flow of electrons and the ability for our mitochondria to make energy. Um, natural surfaces like the ground are negatively charged. So when we put our feet on the ground, bare feet, without any insulators like shoes on, we can accumulate some of that negative charge and maybe readdress the balance in our body. And there's some interesting images of showing the reduction of inflammation when people spend a certain amount of time with their feet on the earth. Uh, what's important, again, we live in a modern world is there's a lot of um, areas perhaps in cities where you put your feet on the ground, but probably there's nasty electrical cables underneath or something. Um, so I don't know how easy that is to do in certain areas of the world, but certainly people will know if they spend a day at the beach barefoot um, paddling around in the water, um, Again, there's lots of factors at play, but they generally would come home, feel pretty tired, sleep well. Um, and a lot of people with chronic pain, for example, going on holiday, doing similar things, would, would report that their pain is reduced. A lot of their symptoms might diminish. And then when they come back, get back to their normal life, wear shoes again, um, wear more clothes than they, they potentially should be and spend more time indoors, then a lot of their pain might return. So I think, I think it does play a role if you can um, get your feet on the earth just to I think I think just generally as a principle people connecting back to nature um, is a useful one speaking of connecting back to nature there's a whole plethora of information on the type of water one should drink and the mm. source of it so filtered water that we get in plastic bottles is not technically right for your body and then there's alkaline water apparently that's good for you then there is uh, low sodium water and wh wh where does one go for getting the right water yeah i uh, i think that one's a challenge i mean going back to what we talked about maybe towards the start of our conversation with these impurities that you can find a lot of the water may be contaminated with um i mean they found kind of um female hormones from maybe contraceptive tablets, etc. A lot of things that happen in our environment end up back in our water supplies. Um, I have an AquaTrue, which is like a, a benchtop water purification and filtration device, which is purported to be reasonably good. Um, and then I add back minerals to it. But in terms of um, what to drink, I don't know. I think um, there's a, there's a few cool websites where you can find uh, natural springs near where you live, um, certainly in the UK and maybe in the States. I'm not sure about over there. But um, <laughs> the, I think that... So I'm going to be just stuck here with no, not the right amount of water and the right yeah. kind of water. Um, I think, I think um, Jack Cruz has opinions on this. His would be that um, kind of glacial, so Voss as a brand, um, spring waters would be would be his go-to. Um, there's, some, there's some interesting stuff on water, um, whether it makes a difference to drink alkaline water. I, I, I'm not overly convinced. I think um, 
certainly electrolytes are important and making sure that you get enough minerals are there's some interesting products called Quinton um, that people really like, which is essentially seawater that's been purified or at least filtered. Um, but yes, I don't have any strong opinions on it. What, where can people find you and see where you're, what you're working on? So I am doing a few things at the moment, but mostly I'm active on my Instagram account, which is at Dr. Egg Caddy. Um, where I, I, I use it mostly as just a platform to hopefully educate people on the things that I'm studying myself. I have a newsletter, which I've just started, well, I, I've done 10 weeks of, which I feel like I've just started. Um, again, the link comes up now and again on my Instagram, but I haven't actually posted it anywhere. I've got a website, drredcaddy.com. Um, and then I'm working with a few people. So I work with uh, Julian Pignot over at StrongFit1. Um, or strongfit.com, and I work um, with Richard Aceves. So we, we work with clients together. So he tends to cover the, the movement nervous system perspective, and I cover the cellular health perspective. And because we both kind of understand each other's work, um, we have some cool success stories with clients. Um, so he can be found at richardaceves.com, the Barracuda Way, and Movement Ayahuasca, which is something that we're build, building together as well these retreats where we use movement and breathing and talking and all these fun things to help people who are stuck get unstuck, hopefully, from their behavioral patterns. And if someone would want to consult with you and be your patient, what what resources would they have to look for? So um, they would be my client, not my patient, because they're not sick. Um, they... Probably the best way is either to send me a message on Instagram, but generally I send people to my website and they can book in for a, like a discovery call so we can, I can get a, a sense of whether we would work well together, what that person is looking for, um, and go from there. Unfortunately, the, the tests are not the cheapest things, but the more people hear about them, the more the technology becomes acceptable, the more other doctors start to engage with us, the cheaper these things can become, the more readily available they can become, and then hopefully the more healthy people can be, and then the better the world is, which is, uh, in the end, is the goal, I hope, that people are healthier and happier. That makes sense so much. Okay. Thank you so much for speaking to me. I really appreciate you taking the time. That's all right. Thank you very much for having me.